everyone, hi, how are you? Welcome, welcome to a new long-awaited episode of the Psych Flow podcast. First of all, long time no here, I guess. Thank you so much for bearing with me um, and I am really, really looking forward to today's episode. This episode will be talking about a subject which I have been introduced to through a New York Times article recently and since then I have been completely sucked into it for the past couple of days. So today we'll be talking about a psychiatrist who, due to one of the biggest disasters of the 20th century, man-made disasters of the 20th century, conducted research on his theory that people can actually sense doom, they can foresee bad things happening, they can foresee future and prevent future disasters. And it all comes to a dark twisted ending however when the people working for him predicting these very very dark scenarios actually predict his forthcoming end. Let's get right into this. On the morning of Friday 21st of October 1966 over 100 children made their way to the elementary school in Aberthan, South Wales. This was a small mining town. The coal industry was actually holding onto its daily life around this time because oil was coming in and it was the next big thing. The residents relied on mining activities as the main source of income and economy. One of the things that you may not know is that when coal is being extracted it requires a lot of debris and a lot of rock and soil to be removed and dumped in piles nearby. These piles can reach over 100 feet in size and for my European friends that's around 30 or more meters or the size of Statue of Liberty from head to heel. These piles have long been named ticking time bombs and just disasters waiting to happen from the risk of landslides to contaminating whole town's water sources. And this was no different in the small town of South Wales. These numerous spoil tips have been reported to the National Coal Board um, a few years before due to the dangerous look and location. Not only were they located on a hillside above the small town, one of them was directly above an elementary school, only a quarter of a mile above, and all that separated them was a steep slope. I'm pretty sure you can see where this is going. The National Coal Board however decided that even though the danger was immense, the cost of removing the tip was simply too high and therefore refused to move it. And so the tip stayed and stayed and grew taller and locals were hesitant to keep complaining because the mine provided employment for around 800 people in the area and closing the mines due to too many complaints would leave the town stranded with no base of income and so people just kind of ignored it and carried on living their lives day by day as if nothing was wrong. By the time that Friday morning rolled around, the constant rain carried on for just around a week. Locals described the weather as misty and nasty and gloomy and wet. The clouds were so low that one police officer said that the fog and mist were so dense he couldn't make out anything past the valley. So at 7.30 that Friday morning, the workers at the top of the hill responsible for dumping the coal noticed that the tip was starting to sink in on itself, reportedly as deep as 20 feet. One tipping worker reported that the debris sunk and then started to come back up on itself and it started to rise slowly and then faster and then turned into a wave and started traveling at a tremendous speed. He continued, it sort of came up out of the depression and it turned into a wave down towards the mountain, towards Aberfan village and into the mist. I think one of the most haunting parts about this story is that if all of this took 
placed just 20 minutes earlier, the school would have been empty. At 9am, the students began the last half day before the term was over, so a few hours from now, they will be free for a couple of weeks to enjoy the fall holiday. Jeff Edwards, who was eight at the time, recalled that not long after 9am, the lights in the classrooms began to shake. The teachers and students heard a deep rumble. Some mistook it for thunder, while others said that it reminded them of an airplane about to land. At 9.15am, 300,000 cubic yards of dirt, mud and coal came sliding down the hill at more than 80 miles an hour, consuming 19 houses on its way down and finally completely engulfing the junior school. Everything was completely destroyed. The news reported that the scene looked like a bomb had striked or an earthquake ripped through the small town. Parents ran to the scene and began frantically trying to dig out the children who were still under the coal mass, crying and shouting for help. But with every minute lost, the mass began to dry and form almost a concrete-like wall. People were trying to dig down, but the waste was just too deep and too hard. A few lucky children and teachers were dug out and the last person found alive was an eight-year-old boy at 11 a.m. But the volunteers and parents didn't know this and they didn't stop digging. Work went on late into the night with everybody uncovered, parents heartbreak as they had to try and identify the children. 116 children between ages 7 and 11 died that day, either from direct impact or due to suffocation, and 28 children were dug out and survived. In the days following this tragedy, volunteers and medics made their way to the town to help those who were grieving as well as just to lend a hand in rebuilding the town. And one of those people was Dr. J.C. Barker, a consultant psychiatrist who wanted to help those who were experiencing the trauma of the event. But while working with the rescue teams and listening to the stories of those who were present, he started to feel like some of the local people and even the children themselves predicted the tragedy that ended their lives. Apparently, earlier that month, a 10-year-old Errol Jones approached her mum with some concerning news. I'm not afraid to die, she said. The day before the disaster, she came to her mum again and this time she recalled the dream. I dreamt that I went to school and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. And so Barker contacted the London Evening Standard, a newspaper, and suggested a nationwide investigation to determine whether or not anyone else had a weird feeling about the tragedy. He published an appeal in the newspaper on the 28th of October 1966, requesting any persons who had experienced the premonition or dreamed of the tragedy before it occurred to come forward and get in touch. And sure enough, over the next few months, he received 76 letters from people who all claimed that they had some kind of experience, a dream or a feeling of the coal landslide disaster before it actually happened. After excluding those who were too vague or maybe potentially couldn't really be proven, the psychiatrist was left with around 60 that he deemed grounded in possible reality. He contacted those 60 possible witnesses with a request of names and addresses of anyone who could confirm that their dreams or premonitions in fact took place before the event occurred, and 24 of those did. Miss Grace Eagleton said, I have never been to Wales, nor do I possess a television set. One week before the disaster, I had a vivid, horrible dream of a terrible disaster in a coal mining village. It was a valley with a big building filled with young children. Mountains of coal and water were rushing down the valley, burying the building. The screams of the children were so vivid that I screamed myself. Everything all happened so quickly, then it all went black. 
Another local eight-year-old boy called Paul Davies actually drew a picture showing figures digging in the hillside underneath the words, the end. Paul unfortunately died in the tragedy. Mary Hennessy wrote to Dr Barker saying that she had a dream about the Aberfan disaster before the tragedy. She recalled children in two rooms. They moved to a bigger room at the end of which there were wooden bars and they were trying to climb up to get over the top of the bars. There was then hundreds of people running to that same place and the faces were horrible. They were crying. She said she was so frightened that she woke up. She said she got so scared by the dream that she called her son and told him about it as he had two young daughters and she was frightened that the premonition was something to do with those children. In Plymouth, the evening before the call slide, a woman had a vision at a spiritualist meeting. She told six witnesses that she saw a schoolhouse, a Welsh miner and an avalanche of coal hurling down a mountainside towards a boy with long bangs. Within minutes of the disaster, a 30-year-old film technician from Middlesex jumped up from her chair complaining of an earthy, decaying smell which she recognised as that of death. And so all of these stories gave birth to Dr. Barker's theory on the human instinct. He believed that people could sense disasters one way or another before they actually took place. He called this the pre-disaster syndrome, experienced by a small portion of the population. Apparently, these people had bodily sensations ahead of important or emotional events, not unlike twins who say that they can feel each other's pain even when they are hundreds of miles apart. You know how in films and media, you often see flocks of birds and animals flee before a natural disaster occurs and in fact when looking at causalities in terms of animal lives in tsunamis and earthquakes they tend to be very low much lower than human lives this is because mammals birds and insects can actually sense the waves and vibrations in the ground alerting them of disturbances and letting them flee early and so what about humans? We are animals after all. Do you think we can subconsciously sense the same vibrations? Well, here's the thing. Humans can feel infrasound, but we don't necessarily know what the feeling is. Some people experience a sensation of being spooked or feeling a religious presence or simply just feeling this overwhelming sense of doom in the presence of infrasound. Research has also shown that we can sense and experience Riley waves through our joints. However, we have found that we don't consciously respond to these signals. It could be that we sense a natural impending doom, but we are not only not used to responding to these signals, but we also allow our rational, logical mind to take over. Surely not, it's probably nothing, there's nothing to be worried about, it will be just fine or I'm just being paranoid. The rational explanation for these premonitions is of course that they are just simple coincidences, but I think as humans we have a problem with accepting that all of these events are just random. I personally think that as we evolved, our brains were hardwired to see patterns, whether that's behavioural patterns, whether that's physical patterns, anything that could bring us harm, patterns in the shadow that could look like a face of a predator, and to then make connections based on these in order to prevent them later on. In fact, further research conducted by Barker in the 60s and 70s discovered premonitions relating to a plane crash and also a train being derailed. This project was however destined to 
to come to a morbid end. 18 months after the project was launched, two of his most reliable workers who had these premonitions actually had a sense that he was about to die, one of them going as far as to ask the psychiatrist to check his gas work. On August 18th, 1968, Barker suffered a brain hemorrhage in his home and was hospitalised. He later died at just 44 years old. Before we finish, I wanted to entertain the idea of these premonitions being a possibility. I know it might sound a little crazy, but I'm on the verge. I want to believe in this underdeveloped evolutionary mechanism that works like a warning system. Maybe we actually get surrounded by warning signs and we just tend to ignore them. Maybe if we trusted our guts a little more, maybe we might start picking up on these signals and in the end avoid something terrible happening. So here are some premonitions that I have found which actually came true. In 1979, David Booth was an office manager who had a reoccurring nightmare. He saw a plane veering off the runway, flipping over and bursting into flames. He told the authorities who, to his surprise, took him seriously and identified the plane described as either a DC one zero or a Boeing 727. Unfortunately, there was nothing more that they could do as there was no other details in his dreams to identify these planes. But on May 25th, an American Airlines flight 191 crashed just minutes after takeoff. One of the engines came off away from the wing, veering off the runway and killing over 200 people. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of this next one, but the sinking of the famous Titanic was eerily similar to an earlier novel by Morgan and Robertson and the ship in the book, the Titan, was also the largest vessel of its time, just like Titanic. It was just 25 meters shorter and just like its real life equivalent, the Titan was supposed to be unsinkable. Both ships were capable of traveling at over 20 knots an hour and they both sank after hitting an iceberg in the middle of April. Finally, both ships only carried the bare minimum number of lifeboats, even though there were thousands of passengers on the ship. The author later dismissed any particular dreams or premonitions, but many have suggested that maybe this was an unconscious process of creative ideas. Maybe this was another example of picking up on premonitions unconsciously. On the morning of February 26, 1993, Naylor, a Wall Street executive, was on his way to work at the World Trade Center. It was a regular morning but when he reached Grand Central Station he had a sudden and unmistakable feeling of foreboding that he just couldn't describe. He said that something he couldn't explain told him to turn around and go back home and he did just that and his U-turn probably saved his life because at 12.17pm that day a bomb exploded in the centre killing six people and injuring over a thousand. On September 11th, Naylor was once again getting ready to work in the World Trade Center and when he got that same feeling that he did in 1993, he went home just like he did once before. He was then stunned to discover what happened next. To this day, he is grateful that he received the premonition but also feels guilty that he was unable to help others. If you would like, you can check out the links in my description for the rest of the article talking about the premonitions that came true. These are absolutely fascinating and I'm really interested to see what you guys think. Have you ever had a premonition or a weird feeling that came true? I really hope that you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Remember that you can find me on all of my social media down below and please drop any suggestions in the comments and contact me on Instagram or my email. I hope that you have a wonderful day and I will see you in my next one. Bye guys. <laughs>